Good morning. My name is Christian Burke. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I get the privilege of continuing our summer in the Psalms. Our, our, what we're doing this summer is we're taking a few Psalms uh, and preaching through them. There's 150, so we can't get to all of them this summer. But well, it's kind of cool. Over the next few weeks, you're going to just hear some of the different pastors, just kind of like Scott did this morning. A psalm that's particular to, to, to their heart, something that the Lord's really um, uh, done business with them on. And so come expectant just to see the way that the Lord uses his word in the lives of his people and for him to use his word in your life in a similar way. Last week, Todd kicked off our series with Psalm 1. He was up here in Willy Wonka land with all the VBS decorations with all the kids in here talking through Psalm 1. So hopefully you guys took home some things from that because Psalm 1 really does get the ball rolling. It, it, it really does introduce us to so much of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. In particular, it, it introduces us to these two paths, what it's called the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It starts out with this idea of blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the path of the wicked or stand with the sinners or sit with the scoffers, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And because of that, he's like a tree planted by a river of water. No matter what's going on around him, whether winter, spring, summer, or fall, all he has to do is call. No. Um, no matter what's going on, he knows that the Lord has got him. He's, he, he's taking care of him because he is rooted deep in God's word. But the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. So the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. That's what we talked about last week. Today I get the opportunity to, to, to teach on Psalm 2. So if you ever have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Psalm 2. Like Psalm 1, this one almost is, is the counterpart to it. That With Psalm 1 and 2, you have the introduction to the 148 Psalms that will come after it. It shows us the dominant themes that continue throughout the book. Like we've already learned this blessedness, not just, oh, in some weird religious term, but that true, deep, it literally means happiness, this deep, rich, satisfying happiness. But then the corresponding aspect of that, which is judgment. So we have blessedness and judgment throughout the book of Psalms. Another thing we have throughout the book of Psalms is the, the ability of God to sustain the person who trusts in him, even against their enemies, and even ultimately to gain victory over their enemies. And ultimately, the main thing we're going to see from Psalm 2 this morning, this book of Psalms teaches us about God's chosen king, his Messiah, the one through whom he will win that ultimate victory. That Messiah, that chosen king, is the main point of Psalm 2. So can we read it together? Would you stand with me? As we read Psalm 2, I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, if you have that as well or whatever, feel free to read along with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. 
The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father God, would you bless the reading of your word, our study of it this morning? Would you open up our hearts and minds as only you can to know you through your word? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Psalm 2 reads like, like a short play. There's four main characters in it. It starts out with the psalmist, almost the narrator, describing the kings of the nations and introducing them. And then the kings picked up the dialogue. Then we see the Lord responding to the kings by talking about his king. Then the king picks up the dialogue and talks about why he has the right to share in God's rule. And then the psalmist comes back in at the end and says, Therefore, O kings... Be wise and be warned. Submit to God's king. That's what we're looking at in Psalm 2 this morning. And right there you should see a stark contrast or an important difference between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. What we looked at last week was Psalm 1 is a highly personal individual psalm. Blessed is the man or the one who delights in the law of the Lord. But in Psalm 2 it ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 1 is talking about this one person out of the mess of humanity who seeks God. Psalm 2 is very much directed at kings and nations and rulers. It's a global psalm. And that's representative of the rest of the book of Psalms as well. In the book of Psalms, you will find certain ones that are of such a personal, intimate nature that show us the kind of deep, close relationship that we can have with God. But throughout the book, you will also encounter psalms that remind you that the Lord who is my shepherd, who leads me beside still waters and makes me lie down in green pastures, is the same Lord who rules over nations, who sits enthroned in the heavens. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 2. It starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let's throw off their rule. Let's cast off their bonds. It's almost described like this global Boston Tea Party where the rulers of the earth are amassed together to vent their frustration and try and cast off the rule of the king. And the way that the psalmist describes it, there's universal participation. It's not just an uprising amongst the people. And it's not just the rulers getting power crazy. No, all of them together are united. And look what it says. Against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed is literally his Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Messiah. We're going to talk more about that Messiah in a second. But here's the thing that's really important to point out from that. The Messiah and the Lord... Rule together. Look at what it says. Let us throw off their rule. Let us cast off their bonds. That this Messiah, whoever he is, rules as God's co-regent, sharing in the very rule over the nations that God himself has. 
It's not an anxious question. Why do the nations rage? It's not like we're sitting there with our head in our hands going, oh no, the nations don't want to listen to God. What are we going to do? Although that's often what it feels like, right? I mean, you, you watch the news. It doesn't matter if it's wartime or peacetime. It always seems like the world is about two clicks from falling apart. Because it kind of is, right? No matter if things are going good or bad, people are running around at a million miles an hour. Everyone fully convinced that they know how to save the world or maybe just save themselves. And fully convinced also that the true villains are the ones that don't agree with them. But the one thing that all nations have always been united on is this. Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's rebel against God. They don't always go about it the same way, but I guarantee you that is the same purpose. Universal rebellion against God. It's easy to pick on certain countries, right? Like you can look at the communist state of China that is an avowedly atheistic state, and you go, yeah, they're against God because their entire society is based upon the fact that the individual can have no higher allegiance than to the state. Everything falls apart if you would admit that there's a higher authority than the government. So therefore, we'll deny any authority above the government. And all of your devotion has to be in the government. But make no mistake of, it, of this. Just as equally rebellious as denying God is the effort to make him into your national mascot. Just as rebellious is the desire to offer up token prayers to him, asking to bless your national efforts with no consideration for whether those efforts actually fit in with his desires or not. Please understand, God is not our national mascot. He's not the great dodger in the sky. And he will not scratch our backs if we scratch his. He is God. Look at how the psalmist describes him in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. It's not, a, it's not a, why are the nations raging kind of question. One commentator I was reading said that beginning verse 1, you could have just easily said it like this. Why do the nations bother? What are they trying to do? What do they think they're going to accomplish? They're plotting in vain. He who sits in heaven laughs at their efforts to rebel against him. And the posture that he says is important. It's not that Jesus, God is just sitting around in heaven. No, the picture is that he is sitting enthroned in heaven. While the kings of these small nations on earth are rebelling together against God, the one who's king not just of nations, but of the universe, looks at them. And it's almost like the old cartoon where the little guy is trying to fight against the big guy. And so the big guy just kind of holds, him, holds his head off and he's swinging and he can't quite get it, right? What's he trying to do? Or it's, it's the little dog that thinks it's a big dog. I had one of those growing up. That thing was about that big and it thought it was a German shepherd. But as soon as it got close to a German shepherd yapping at it, all it took was that dog to look at it and bark. Boom, he's gone, right? Running off with his tail between his legs. That's the picture that we have here. Look what God says. Verse 4. Actually, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What does God say that sends them running off like the little dog with his tail between his legs? Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is my king. 
This is the one that I've given rule to. Listen up. And so very next verse, the king picks up the dialogue. He says this, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay, we got to talk about this king for a second. Because we're only halfway through the psalm and we've learned some really important things about him. Verse 2 told us that he is God's Messiah. Verse 6 told us that he's God's king. And verse 7 tells us that he's God's son. Who do you think it's talking about? I mean, I bet you any kid over in Sunday school right now, if I asked them that question, they were listening to the song, would be like, oh, I know! The typical Sunday school answer. If it's not God, it's Jesus, right? That's always the answer. Yes, because we know the rest of the story, we know that this psalm has to be talking about Jesus. But it's not only talking about Jesus. Let me explain. In order to understand who else this psalm could be talking about, we need to understand a little bit more about when the psalms were written, and then also when they were arranged and compiled into the order that we have them. We know from, if if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, the majority of the psalms at the beginning say, of David, that King David himself wrote the majority of the psalms. And we can pretty easily deduce that the rest of the psalms, the majority of the rest of them, were probably written sometime during that monarchy period of Israel's history when David and his sons that came after him were sitting on the throne. But here's some interesting things we learn about David and his sons. They were anointed as the kings of Israel. And it was very common for them to be referred to as Yahweh's anointed or Yahweh's Messiah. Not only that, David and his sons all ruled on the throne in a city called Jerusalem, which is also called Zion, God's holy hill. And even more important, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David where he promises that he will establish the dynasty of David's family forever. And in particular, he says that David's son is going to enjoy a particularly close relationship with God. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14, God says of David's son, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So all three of these titles that we've seen in Psalm 2, God's Messiah, King, and Son, all could refer to David and his sons as they reigned over Israel. And since most of these psalms were written during that period, I think it's safe to say that the original recipients of Psalm 2, the original people who heard it, would have heard it and said, yeah, that's talking about the Davidic kings. That's talking about the kings from the family of David. But while those psalms were probably written during that period, they were probably compiled and put together much later. After the kingdom of David had been divided, and even after the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah had been destroyed and taken away into exile because of their rebellion against God. It was sometime after that exile, whether they were still up in Babylon or they were back in Israel, that some of these prophetic scribes, these prophetic editors, began to compile the Psalms of Israel together into this order that we see them. And they did it really intentionally. I mean, think about this. Imagine you're an Israelite living in exile in Babylon. Or maybe you've come back to the land of Israel, but you're living amidst the ruins of a kingdom that has been destroyed long before. There's no son of David on the throne. How would that shape the way that you read this psalm? When you read of the glory of this king, God's Messiah, 
who's called the Son of God, who the nations owe their allegiance to. I'm sure you'd read it with almost like a, like a nostalgia, a mournful nostalgia, remembering the glory that once had been. But you'd probably read it with an angst, with a tension inside, because even at its height, David and his sons barely scratched the surface of the kind of glory and power that Psalm 2 is talking about. And so you'd read this and you'd go, God, was that it? Because either this is gross exaggeration, whether it was wishful thinking and we never quite got there, or God was speaking through the psalmists, telling his people to look for something so much better than what David and his sons had accomplished. That idea of the Messiah, this one who would fulfill all of God's hopes for God and for God's kingdom, it's taken even further in the prophets by guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. Through those prophets, God took this idea of this son of David, this Messiah, this king, and he helped to show his people that what they were looking for was not just another Messiah, another king from the sons of David, not just a capital or a small M Messiah, but what they were looking for was the capital M Messiah, this one king who would embody all the hopes for Israel, who would be the one who would fulfill all of God's intended purpose for Israel and their kingdom, and who all the nations would swear their allegiance to. And because we get the privilege of living on this side of history, we know who that capital M Messiah is. It's Jesus Christ. He is God's Messiah. He is God's King. He is God's Son. He is everything that Psalm 2 talked about. So while Psalm 2 was written referring to the kings of David, it was also referring to much more than just another king from David. All of those titles, God's king, Messiah, and son, could apply to David and his sons, but they find their fullest meaning when applied to Jesus. Look again at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Oh, there's so much we could say about that verse. Read Hebrews 1. That'll open your eyes to this first, but I got to keep moving. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That sounds good, doesn't it? We could have the best missions Sunday ever right there in that verse. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. It is good news. There is hope, but there's also an ominous sense to it. Because look at what verse 9 says. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When God tells his king to ask him for the nations, it's not like a, what do you want for Christmas? It's him saying, I will give you the nations and then you will do what must be done. You will break them. You will shatter them. Why? How did the psalm start? What are the nations doing? Raging. Plotting together to throw off God's rule. So why are the nations given to God's king? To crush their rebellion. That's why they're given to him. Because it is 
wrong for them to rebel against his rule, and he will make it right. In the end, there will be no escaping the unflinching, unbending rule of Jesus Christ. He will rule over all, and no one will be able to oppose him. This is a tough pill for us to swallow as Americans. I mean, think about this weekend. I mean, we're a nation of rebels. We just all got the day off on Friday to celebrate the fact that the 13 British colonies said, we don't want to listen to the king anymore, right? They plotted together saying, let us throw off his rule. Let's cast off his cords from us. And every year we take the day off to celebrate that. My point today is not to debate whether it was right or wrong for the American colonies to rebel against the British crown. Although, I will say, Romans 13 is very clear that we are called as believers to submit to the governing authorities because they have been established by God. And so to rebel against them is to rebel against God. And by the way, Paul wrote that in Romans 13 while there was an emperor named Nero on the throne of the Roman Empire. And I guarantee you, he did things that were way worse than taxation without representation. As a matter of fact, there were many colonial believers who refused to take part in the American Revolution because of this very biblical principle. So my question for you, as you think back to all the hamburgers and corn on the cob and watermelon that you ate in celebration of rebellion, had you lived in that time, had you lived in the 1770s, Would you have stood with your fellow believers who refused to rebel against the British crown because they understood that it had been appointed by God? Now we also know, we learn especially from the book of Daniel, that Yahweh, that God is the one who rules over nations and that he gives them to whomever he wants. That he is the one who sets up kings and deposes kings. And so, 238 years ago, God saw fit to transfer the authority over this land. Well, I'm more of the East Coast because this was still... Never mind. (laughs) To transfer the authority over this land from the British crown to this fledgling American government. And so, whether it was right or wrong, the one thing that's for sure is this. We now owe to this government the same submission that the colonial believers owed to the British crown. That's for sure. But it is deep within us as Americans to fight against that whole notion. That we feel like if we don't like the person who's in charge, they shouldn't be in charge. We shouldn't have to listen to them. As a matter of fact, the way that the Declaration of Independence says it, it says that we have the right, even the duty, to throw off such government. I can tell you they did not get that from the Bible. We feel like the government has to answer to us, not the other way around. And we're more than happy to listen to the government as long as they do what we want. Do you see how backward our understanding of authority is? I'm not saying that I would rather live under a dictator. I am grateful to live in this country. I'm grateful to live in a representative government, even with all of its imperfections. But I am saying that we must be so careful as Christians to differentiate between our American understanding of government and the kind of government that Jesus has. 
To quote from the Declaration of Independence again, it says that government derives its power from the consent of the governed. Or basically what that means is they rule over us because we give them the permission to. Because we let them rule over us. Jesus does not derive his power from us. His power is not derived at all. No one gives it to him. He has authority because he is the author of everything. It is his by right as God. He doesn't ask us for permission to rule. He has been decreed as king by God himself. We answer to him because he is God's Messiah, God's king, and God's son. Period. But the good news that... Okay. Thank you, Angela. The good news, though, is this. If that doesn't sound like good news to you, let me show you this. As Americans, you want Jesus to have this kind of power. You want him to have absolute, unquestionable authority over all things. See, as humans, we are, we are right to be wary and cautious of people having absolute authority over people. I mean, history is littered with guys like Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot in Cambodia and Emperor Nero, people like that, that seem to illustrate the truth of that saying, that power corrupts and absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. There is one exception to that that makes all the difference in the world. You can trust someone with absolute power only if you know them to be absolutely incorruptible. If they cannot be corrupted, then no amount of power can corrupt them. And that's just who the Bible presents Jesus to be. In Isaiah chapter 11, turn there with me really quickly. This is one of my favorite Old Testament passages about Jesus. It just makes me go, that's the kind of king I want to follow. Isaiah is writing almost prophetically looking to the destruction of Israel and the end of the Davidic line of kings. And this is how he says it in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What? (laughs) Jesse was the name of David's father. And so Isaiah is talking in that way about the line of David, the kings from David. But he calls it a stump because the line of kings has been cut off. But if you've ever cut down a tree in your yard, you're like, good, it's done. And then those little like suckers start popping up through the ground again. That's what he's talking about. This long dead stump that looked like it was gone. A shoot will spring forth from the line of David. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Would you vote for someone like that? Look at what he says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Do you see what that's saying? This king, he will not judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, but with perfect justice and righteousness he will decide. You know what that means? He can't be tricked. He can't be hoodwinked. You can't have a lawyer in a fancy suit talk his way out of this. 
There is no way that you can acquit yourself before the eyes of the one who doesn't have to depend upon what his eyes see because he knows all things perfectly. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be swayed. He is incorruptible in his ability to judge the nations. That's a good thing. Unless you're a lawbreaker. Then there's no way out. Not only is Jesus presented as an incorruptible king, but look at what he does with his power. On the night before Jesus was crucified, as he's up in the upper room sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash their feet. Do you remember what it was? What that moment was like when Jesus decided to get up and wash their feet? Look at John 13. I'm going to put this verse up on the screen. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and began washing their feet. At that moment when he knew, look what it says, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He's sitting there at the supper going, I am the king of everything. My Father has given me authority over everything. Remember those questions you'd ask sometimes as a kid. What would you do if you were king for a day? This is that moment for Jesus. What does he do with his realization that he has all power over everything? He serves. He gets down on his knees and he serves his disciples. Not corrupted by that power, but serving in that power. Not only that, later that night he will allow himself with all that power to be arrested by the guards. He will stand quiet and resolute under a mockery of a trial while the religious leaders and Pilate and Herod all collude together to put him to death. He will submit to the will of his Father, even to the point of death on a cross. He will bear the weight of the full wrath of God for the sins of his people, the punishment for their rebellion against him. He takes on himself. That's what Jesus does with absolute power. That's why you can trust him with it. Because the one who rules over nations loves the nations. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son as king over all that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can trust Jesus with absolute power because he is an incorruptible king. He is a good king, a just king, a servant king, a sacrificial king. He is a merciful, loving king. And most importantly, he is a risen and eternal king. Because he rose from the dead. He conquered death. It no longer has any power over him. That means his kingdom will never end. Or the way that Isaiah 9 puts it, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Government and peace at the same time. We've never seen that. But with Jesus' power, there will be government and peace in ever-increasing measure for all time. You want him as that king. But if you reject him, 
if you persist in your rebellion against his rule, knowing that he is a loving, good, just, sacrificial, risen, eternal king, there remains nothing left for you but the fearful expectation of his judgment. That's it. There is no other way of escape from the wrath of God than God himself. Therefore, verse 10 of of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the people. There's a negative and a positive. He starts with the positive first. That's always the thing you should do. Be wise. Be wise. Listen to reason. Look at the facts. Look at what's going on around you. Look at the raging of the nation against God. Look at the laughter of heaven at their attempts to rebel against him. Look at the king given this authority to break and shatter the nations. But look at the goodness of his rule at the same time. Be wise. Look what he says in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve him with fear. That word for fear, it's not just terror. It's this idea of this deep reverential awe. Serve him with just this amazing yet terrified sense of how awesome he is. Look at the next one. Rejoice with trembling. Todd's word of the day for the last few weeks has been counterintuitive. There it is again. Rejoice with trembling? Yes. <coughs> Serving Jesus brings with it such great joy mixed simultaneously with trembling at his greatness. The two are together. Verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Now, don't get weird here. This isn't an affectionate kiss. This is the idea of kissing the hand of the king or the ring of the king or even the foot of the king. It is, uh, to put it in our terms, pledge allegiance to the son. Swear your loyalty, your devotion, your obedience, your submission to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Because there is a negative. He calls them to be wise, to serve, rejoice, and swear their allegiance to Jesus. But he calls them to be warned as well. Because his wrath is quickly kindled. And you will perish in the way. You are on the path of destruction if you continue in your rebellion against Jesus. But look at how he ends the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's that word blessed again. That deep satisfying, sustaining happiness. Blessed are all. This is not just a statement of fact. That all, it's, it's an invitation. It's a call to all who hear, come. It is the king of heaven given authority over all nations saying, I am coming, I know what you're doing, and I'm furious. But come to me. And not only will you find refuge from my wrath, but you will find that deep, satisfying happiness that you've always looked for apart from me. The only refuge from the wrath of God is Jesus Christ. And the only way to find the deep happiness that, you, happiness that you've been looking for apart from Jesus is in him as well. Jesus really is the key to everything. 
if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, if you have not sworn your allegiance to him, do it today. Do it today. We'd love to come talk with you at the prayer room or talk with someone sitting next to you. What does it mean? How do I follow this Jesus as king? We'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're someone who you've sworn allegiance to Jesus with your lips, but you realize this morning it's more been in that kind of mascot sense, that personal mascot. You, he's kind of like your genie or your, your guardian angel who you go like, come on, God, help me get all my hopes and dreams. I hope you see today that that is just as rebellious as flat out rejecting him. He is king and you are not. So serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Pledge your allegiance to him because that's where life is found. But for those of us here today who we have done that, Jesus has our allegiance, our submission, our devotion, our loyalty. That's not the end of it for us. Look at verse 10. Who's verse 10 addressed to? Look at verse 10. Who's it addressed to? Who's he talking to? Oh, kings. For those of us who have sworn allegiance to Jesus, we now have the privilege and responsibility of bringing this same message of wisdom and warning to our rulers, to those with authority over us. Because God isn't just looking for individual allegiance. He is calling all kings and nations everywhere to bow to his king. So that's the way that we're going to wrap things up today. We're going to pray for our leaders that in line of, with verses 10 through 12, that they would serve the Lord with fear, that they would rejoice with trembling, that they would swear their allegiance to Jesus, and that because of that, they would become strong, courageous, humble, servant, sacrificial leaders like Jesus for the people under their care. We're not going to pray that they would make the decisions we want them to make. We're not going to pray that God would kick them out of office. We are going to pray... For both sides of the aisle, and in particular, pray for the side of the aisle that you put yourself on, because you usually think those are the good guys. Pray even harder for them, that they would swear their allegiance to Jesus. And not only this country, because this verse is addressed to all nations and kings everywhere. I'm going to put something up on the screen here. Um, on the one side, I just listed some of our national leaders and local leaders, and then on the other side... Just, I couldn't fit them all, of course, because there's a ton of nations, but I just grabbed a few that we're either most aware of, that are closest to us, or that have been in the news a lot lately. And what I want to do is I want to take the next five minutes or so, either on your own or together with those around you, keep your Bible open and look at verses 10 through 12 and pray that on behalf of our leaders and the leaders of the nations. But as you pray, understand this. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Do you believe at this, right at this very moment, wherever they are on this globe, the God of heaven could turn the heart of the rulers of nations, open their eyes to the gospel, and cause them to pledge their willing allegiance to Jesus? Do you believe he can do that? Then take the next five minutes and let's pray for the leaders of this world, that they would bow the knee to Jesus, and then we'll sing together.